Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, the role of pressure transient analysis in CCUS projects. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on December 13th, 2023. And now your moderator, Florian Holander. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, everyone, and welcome to SPE Live, the role of pressure transient analysis in CCUS projects. My name is Florian Holander. I'm a scientific advisor at the SLBS Research Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I will be your moderator today. So SPE Live will last for 30 minutes, and we encourage you to ask questions throughout the events. The last few years have been exponential growth of interest around the geological storage of CO2. Putting carbon back in the ground leverages many of the technologies and know-how developed for oil and gas exploration and production, all by with different constraints and objectives. Many projects are initiated with a high level of uncertainty regarding the nature of the subsurface that are usually resolved from a limited number of data wells. While production and injection tests are usually performed, in particular to assess injectivity, the role of pressure transient analysis does not appear to be as prevalent in CCUS projects as it does in oil and gas settings. And here to discuss those points and better understand the role that pressure transient analysis could take, I'm joined today by an experienced group of speakers. Let me start by introducing Dr. Anton Shipanov. Dr. Shipanov is the chief scientist at Norse Norwegian Research Center in Stavanger, Norway. He holds a PhD in reservoir simulation from Perm State University and has participated and managed many uh, R&D and consultancy projects for over the last 20 years. Dr. Shipanov is the co-author of over 30 published papers. He has taught well testing course at the University of Stavanger and supervised masters and PhD students. His research interests include well testing, well and reservoir monitoring, and simulation applied to hydrocarbon production, geological carbon storage, and geothermal energy. Our second speaker is Dr. Mehdi Zaiduni. Dr. Zaiduni is an associate professor at the Department of Petroleum Engineering at CISU. He has 17 years of continuous research experience on various reservoir engineering aspects of CCS, starting with his PhD studies at the University of Calgary in 2006, followed by his work at UTRC's Bureau of Economic Geology and then at LSU. He teaches reservoir engineering and well testing. He has also developed a new course on CCS as part of the CCS program offered at LSU. He has been awarded the Teaching Excellence Award twice for his teaching effort at Louisiana State University. And finally, we are also joined by Jordan Mimun. Jordan Mimun is the founder of and principal consultant at Empire Well Test Consulting. He advises energy companies on design, planning, and interpretation of well tests across oil and gas and CCS. Jordan was previously the principal reservoir engineer for well testing at ExxonMobil, where he oversaw their worldwide exploration tests and their production units during his 13 years at the company. His well set experience took into every continent but Antarctica, if any of you has opportunities there. He has also taught well testing course to over 150 engineers and geoscientists. He served as the JPT Editorial Review Committee and as a chairperson of, of the SP Applied Technology Workshop sorry, on well testing. He's been a member of the Well Testing Network since 2013. Jordan holds a diploma d'ingénieur from the Ecole Centrale de Lille in France and a Master of Science in Petroleum Engineering from UT Austin. Anton, Mehdi, and Jordan, welcome to the SPI. Jordan, let me start with you. Every CO2 ejection project starts by resolving some of the potential large uncertainties related to stratigraphy, basic formation properties, and identification of potential target loads. This is applicable at the early evaluation stage, but also all the way to execution. And flow testing is often part of that sequence, at least for deliverability estimation. So how would you perform those tests to maximize the value of data we're gathering, considering that depending on approval and the status of the project and costs, you may flow water and or CO2 and may consider flowing or injecting? So what's your thinking there? 
Now, as you were asking the question, um, I could imagine people on the line thinking to themselves, either, well, obviously you got to inject, or obviously you got to flow. Uh, and it might actually not be that obvious or clear cut, because it depends on your early evaluation objectives, which will vary from project to project, and what you're comfortable with. Either way, what you want to get out of a test is crystal clear data that helps de-risk whatever outstanding concerns the operator has to move forward with a project. So is it injectivity? Is it lateral connectivity? Is it both? Or is there something else at stake? So you might not have a one-size-fits-all because not all aquifers share the same risks. And accordingly, and very importantly, not all operators see eye to eye on the approach to mitigate those risks. Uh, the water injection test seems popular, especially if you're dealing with regulatory requirements that call for uh, injection tests. Yet there are operators who aren't so sure that they can meet ambitious reservoir description objectives with an IFT and the electric flow instead or in addition. And all of that is with water. CO2 or even nitrogen tend not to be um, entertained, at least not very early on, for practical reasons, especially offshore. For operators with a, a large portfolio of aquifer candidates to choose from, um, you might be able to, to exclude or deprioritize them right off the bat with just water, inject or, or flow, if you are in a screening mode. And finally, the simpler the better, maybe uh, when it comes to pressure transit analysis. So if you are really testing for reservoir description purposes, which again, might be irrelevant for some operators who are blessed with huge aquifers they know are continuous. But if you are earnest to look at that and it's critical for you, in that case, you may want to do whatever you can to make the test a controlled experiment, like we always do in oil and gas, so you can really use it quantitatively to its fullest extent without any lingering doubt. With that said, interestingly, some operators do consider layering in CO2 sooner rather than later as part of that evaluation scope. And the considerations there are A, get a glimpse of the injectivity um, with the actual fluid of interest, especially maybe if you are dealing with a, a vertically heterogeneous formation, and B, get a glimpse of what the pressure data might look like to manage expectations for um, surveillance and um, to potentially influence the instrumentation strategy for these permanent completions. Right. That, that, that's quite interesting. And I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned that sometimes it's regulatory and sometimes we want actually to get some data. So the data you're going to get varies depending on that. So Anton, question for you here. Once you've acquired the data during CO2 injection in particular, then we need to interpret it, right? And as Jordan mentioned, the interpretation depends a bit on, on what you want, want to achieve. 
But one of the major holdup is that the physics involved can be quite more complex than we have in standard oil and gas because we have free displacement, we have a buoyancy effect, you have solubility effect, chemical reactions. So as a consequence, you know, the pressure response is not as simple and as linear as, as we used to. So do we need that? The only option there is to go with full numerical simulation to try to extract the value of or interest, or are there are other approaches that you may follow? Yes, uh, thank you, Florian. It's a very interesting question, actually. And uh, here I would like to share some lessons that we learned uh, when we analyzed uh, three years' history of CO2 injection in uh, saline aquifer at the Snowit field. And uh, actually, Snowit field is a very good example because it's uh, very well documented. Uh, first of all, uh, Equinor, the site operator, they published many papers on this stuff and also in the Academy as well. So you can find quite good description of the case. And uh, what we actually analyzed, it was the uh, first uh, period of injection of CO2 in, in this uh, saline aquifer. And this is a sandstone reservoir uh, offshore Norway. And what is interesting, this reservoir is uh, divided uh, by blocks, by faults. So it's quite uh, interesting uh, to understand, uh, first of all, ceiling impact or ceiling conditions on the faults. And also another question is uh, if we have some uh, sub-seismic uh, features that could also limit our uh, injection and storage capacity. Uh, so all in all, actually, it was well, one well injection of CO2 uh, for about three years, and uh, it provided a very nice data set uh, for both uh, reservoir characterization and monitoring. Uh, a little bit about uh, uh, installation of the, the gauge itself, and the gauge was installed uh, uh, 800 meters above the sun face, which is quite usual for, for such wells. And uh, this actually caused uh, some limitations in the interpretation, because uh, if you have such a distance from sun face to the uh, gauge location, uh, you have uh, always, if you start injection or you start shutting, you always have a quite large uh, well storage effect. and. Uh, what's happening that the wellbore actually impacts uh, significantly the response of pressure that you have. And in this context, actually, we're, we're not able to interpret uh, early time response. But what is good, uh, we had very good uh, late time response. And it was uh, a repeatable uh, time-lapse uh, pressure transients that we can analyze and we can, by the way, what we saw, it's more or less repeatable, the same signature in all the transients. And when we started to analyze this data, mm, you're perfectly right. We were quite uncertain about how to interpret this very good data set because it's uh, a lot of uh, physics complexity could impact on the CO2 flow inside the aquifer and how to interpret all these boundary effects and all the stuff. But surprisingly, actually, we were able to match uh, a series of transients and also the whole history of this CO2 injection with quite simple single-phase uh, brine-based model. And you know that single-phase models, they are widely used in uh, PTA. It's a lot of, uh, actually, different config reservoir configurations, different flow regimes, uh, they are already reflected. And what is good also, then you can, if it's an analytical model, you can get uh, uh, interpretation results by clicking the mouse. So it's not complicated numerical simulation in this case, and it's very uh, time efficient and uh, resource efficient. And. Uh, so, uh, as a result, one of the lessons learned from this case, uh, we got a quite good match of all the transients and also the history as a whole. And you can ask me, uh, what about CO2 plume? And uh, in this case, CO2 plume was uh, perfectly accounted for through the 
uh, time-dependent scheme. By the way, we also, after that, we, we tried to understand how we can model this time-dependent scheme, and we found that uh, it uh, depends on the, fully depends on the plume size. So we can recalculate even by calculating this uh, skin factor. And the main lesson actually learned here, it was that uh, if CO2 is localized near the well and not reaching the boundaries, we can actually use uh, interpretation of pressure transient responses uh, with classical single phase approach to get very good representation of uh, reservoir boundaries and understand all these boundaries and flow uh, restrictions inside the reservoir. So this is kind of one of the main conclusions and lessons learned. Well, that's interesting. A bit depressing maybe for all the researchers who want to find new solutions to new problems. But uh, maybe a question for you now, since you're there. Anton has pointed out that at least for late time, we can do with simple is always good. We can always extract value, inf inf useful value, useful information from there. Now, do you believe that this also applies for new wellbore region or there are much bigger limitations at play there and what do you think you could expect to get from the new well borrow zone especially the dry out zone or the transition zones if you have a proper data unity effect of well borrow storage and, and the well design tests yeah excellent if you can eliminate the uh, the early time uh, well borrow effects uh, the well borrow storage uh, then um, there will be uh, quite uh, um, important information that you can get on the near well bore. Uh, the major unknowns of interest in the near well bore region may include the um, um, the, the first first injection profile that how CO two is actually distributed over the injection zone. Uh, second, uh, uh, any fracturing caused by non isothermal effects. Uh, we normally inject CO2 at a cooler temperature than the reservoir. Also, there is a Joule Thompson effect, um, and that can cause um, some uh, alterations uh, to the permeability uh, and fracturing. Um, geochemical alterations, uh, rock and fluid interactions uh, in the near well bore um, with the cement, with the rock, etc. Um, the the salt uh, precipitation um, because of the quite dry CO2 that we inject, uh, brine backflow, which can um, it can increase it it can worsen the salt precipitation, but can also uh, cause some of the uh, perforations to be not accessible for the CO2 that we want uh, we want to injection uh, to inject. Um, and other uh, wellbore integrity issues. So these are major unknowns of interest when it comes to the near wellbore region. And if we don't um, eliminate the effect of wellbore storage within the first few hours so that we can see clearly the near wellbore region, because that's the, um, that's the time that we can see those, probably we won't be able to say much about uh, what are the alterations that can happen uh, in, the well, in the near wellbore region. Um, but let's say that we place, as Anton mentioned, um, that uh, we, we, we place the, in their case, the, uh, the gauge was uh, 800 uh, meters away from the sand face. Uh, if, you, if you place it as close as possible to the, uh, 
perforations and also have uh, downhole shot in, then uh, you could see the first few hours, and we showed in our paper on fall-off test, that you can actually estimate the uh, extent of the dry-out zone and also any um, uh, mobility alterations within that zone um, uh, if salt dry-out occurs. Um, so, uh, in short, yes, but uh, that needs a uh, um, quite uh, uh, well execution of the of the well test. Right now, thank you. That's really uh, informative to remind everyone that this is not that simple. I I'd like to remind everyone on the call at this point that if you have any question, don't hesitate to ask it. You can put in the that in the chat section. We have it. Time constraints, and I'm sure there are going to be many questions, but we're happy to tackle as many as we can. Um, Jordan, we touched just on the importance of getting good data, right? Anton mentioned that, many reinforced that, you even mentioned uh, download shutting tools. Uh, I have personal experience of seeing data where uh, non-isothermal effects uh, can have quite a bit of an impact. So there are a lot of tools existing uh, for, for well testing, especially in the dual system testing uh, arena where you have done all shutting tools, uh, measurement devices. But those are going to be maybe more difficult to, to deploy in CCS projects, if only for a cost standpoint. And so when you have that potentially very damaging impact of wellbore effects that could dominate the, the pressure response as CO2 undergoes phase changes and starts moving around, uh, that could be very detrimental to data quality. So do you have any practical tips or ideas or hand-in-hand requests uh, for those in the call who work on equipment that could help alleviate and reduce those limitations? Yeah, thanks, Royal. Um, I think it could be useful to take advantage of that evaluation appraisal phase to confirm that that data collection plan is going to work out with CO2 and with the envisioned configuration of a permanent completion. Because it feels like a lot of these data collection programs are wishful thinking, inherited from decades of best practices of reservoir management with oil and gas. And whether that translates one-to-one -to, -one to CCS is still to be seen. Uh, you mentioned, Anton mentioned, and uh, Mehdi mentioned um, the storage effects, for instance. And that's one way to investigate that is with a DSC string, which opens a new can of worms with cost. But it gives you the flexibility to include tools that you may not entertain for your permanent completions and test their impact. And you can collect quality data by using the downhole shutting tool, and then you can elect not to use it for one of the shutting periods to see how negatively impacted a surface shutting would be and decide whether it warrants entertaining smart completions, sliding sleeves, and things of that nature for the permanent completions. Likewise, you mentioned, um, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Florian, um, wellbore thermal effects. Uh, with a DST string, you can have gauges along the wellbore to see the impact of wellbore thermal effects and whether pressure readings remain representative as you move further and further up pole. For oil and gas wells, this topic of wellbore thermal effects wellbore thermal effects is pretty niche, pretty exotic. With CO2 injection wells, it has the potential to become more mainstream. And then the question is, 
Do you fix it with formation phase instrumentation, which sounds easier said than done for permanent completions? Then you also need to think about the fact that the technology is not going to last a lifetime, so you need to have intervention to be able to replace it when it fails. Or do you go the workflow route and you look for ways to reliably convert those surface readings or shallow readings to formation phase readings? Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense, right? It's it's even more marked here than in other cases. So Anton, staying on the question of, of measurements and, and data quality, you touched a bit on limitations with UK being somewhat offset in terms of data interpretability. So if you had a choice, unlimited budget, and any option of a hardware deployment, where would you really want to have your measurements located so that you can maximize the value of the data? And beyond that also is the question of when. Are you okay using retrieval gauges and you target a bit your uncertainties and your acquisition plan by running in temporary uh, gauges? Or you really see a, a value of having continuous permanent monitoring throughout the course of the project? Yes, thank you, Florian. I think uh, in any case, the best option is on the whole gauge installed. Uh, and I can argue is this uh, just because uh, if you have permanent the whole gauge, you can uh, get uh, real-time data and this real-time data could be used for uh, permanent well monitoring, so you can try to understand what's happening on the way. And you have, uh, as a second point, you have uh, a very good input for reservoir simulations if you use a uh, uh, reservoir model to follow up and manage your injection. And uh, you also have very uh, certain reservoir volumes injected because this, this information is quite important if you inject CO2. And uh, if you go a little bit farther about interpretation, you can, uh, if you have permanent hole gauge, you can interpret a series of time lapse responses, and you can actually, first of all, see a repeated picture if something, uh, if nothing happens, and you have more or less stable process. Or if you see some changes, you can actually follow up on these changes and try to understand what's happened. And uh, regarding this, uh, also to support uh, uh, point of view, uh, PDG location is very important. If you have PDG as close as possible to the sun face, we, as mentioned, mentioned, we can analyze near well effects. But on top of it, we also could have uh, quite a certain uh, injected volumes, and all this information is very important. Uh, Price-wise, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it seems that uh, PDG installation is not uh, very costly uh, nowadays, and it's probably affordable for the uh, companies. Uh, by the way, uh, can I take Flor uh, Florian the question on the way that they got in the chat? Just, uh, okay. Uh, the question was, if, if we have quite, uh, uh, for well test, uh, if uh, we have quite limited budget, for example, of time frame or something like this, and we cannot, uh, this is the question. We cannot achieve uh, boundaries, uh, which is important to understand what we can do in this case. And uh, yes, time-wise, it's always important to have uh, at least long shut-in period. So we measure pressure for a long time. Uh, and it's not very important how much you inject or produce during the test and how long you do it. Because uh, see, if you uh, actually created a uh, considerable uh, disruption to your pressure in the reservoir, this uh, disruption actually travels and you can get uh, understanding of all the boundaries, it's just a question of time. 
Uh, and uh, but to make it even cheaper, probably and simple, if you are talking about exploration wells, you can try to use permanent uh, uh, gauges or not the whole gauges that you can uh, leave after abandonment of the wells. And these technologies are now developing. So there are different options if you have uh, these limitations. Right. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Let me let me re rebound a bit on that and the question of, of volumes. Uh, something very close to my heart, which is we have more than one wells, right? And so maybe on the topic of measurements, there is a regulatory requirement to have monitoring wells in pretty much every CCS project. And that's to track the movement of the CO2 plume. And we tend to have actually more data in observation wells than in, uh, than in injection wells. So this gives us more data, more sources of information, opportunities to perform interference testing. So you can see how the fluids are moving, how the pressure is moving from well to well. So how do you, from your experience, how do you see that data helping us understand not just the volumes as discussed, but also what's happening within the reservoir and the movements taking place there? And you have to say that, I think you're on mute, Betty. <laughs> Thank you. The, um, uh, of the observation wells uh, uh, have been used, uh, actually, in, in, the, in, in the tests that we have had uh, in uh, the pilot uh, projects uh, um, that, that to, to test the interference uh, and see what can be in taken, what can be learned from those observations. Um, but the, the pressure interference can be looked at within the injection zone, the in-zone, or in an above zone, um, above, uh, separated by the cap rock from the injection zone. Uh, within the injection zone, uh, the minimum you can get is the CO2 arrival at the observation well. And in that case, uh, if you have two wells in two directions, um, by just um, observing when the CO2 arrives uh, in each, either of these directions, you can tell um, in which direction the plume is moving faster. But that's the minimum, really, because uh, you can gain more. Um, I've shown that in one of my recent papers that you can actually obtain uh, the mobility of the CO2, and that can tell you something about um, uh, 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 about how the what is the efficiency of the sweep and also it can tell especially after the closure period um, once you stop the injection it can tell you whether how the co2 is immobilizing within the injection zone because it will the mobility will reduce over time that's about the injection zone about the above zone the interference um, um, the above zone monitoring has been used a lot in natural gas storage projects. So, um, but it is mostly quant qualitative, not quantitative. What can be done um, is at least uh, to easily establish whether there is hydraulic communication between the injection zone and the above zone, whether there is any uh, migration of fluids from the injection zone to uh, the above zone. And if there is, uh, what is the nature of it? Is it because of a line source, for instance, a legacy well, or is it about a planar source, for instance, a fault, a leaky fault? Um, or it can be heterogeneities or discontinuities in the cap rock. Um, but uh, it, pressure, because it can uh, distinguish between the flow regimes, for instance, linear versus radial, it should be able to tell us whether we have a source which is line source or a planar source, for instance. Um, 
the, um, the, the, the unfortunately, um, when we when we have too much complexities, I mean, when we have CO two injection, and at the same time we want to um, uh, to model or to characterize a fault, a leaky fault, it is not as straightforward. the The best way to do to do this is to test for the fault characterization prior to the CO two injection. That way, you can avoid the complex the complexities that are caused by the two phase. Uh, flow nature of this uh, after the CO2 injection. Uh, in that case, uh, the complexities of a fault structure can be uh, delineated and you can, in this case, mostly um, we uh, look for upfault uh, flow, uh, something that we normally in petroleum literature, we don't look at. In petroleum literature, um, we are all familiar with the image well method where you look at the ceiling fault or what we have leaky fault is mostly about cross fault flow, but there is no such a component as a upfault flow. Uh, and that is part of the research that I've done. And I propose this, but the complexity uh, can be masked by the complexities that are caused by the CO2 injection. So it's better to do it prior to CO2 injection. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Simplify the complexity. Um, we're slowly getting towards the uh, the end of the uh, of the session. So I see many, many questions on the chat. So we won't be able to, to cover them. The I'll just ask one quick fire question for each of you in uh, in way of closing. So we go in order, uh, starting with Mehdi, since you're you're already with us. What do you see, expect, hope uh, to see coming up in the field of pressure transit analysis for CCS projects in, in the coming years? More techniques, more tools, more combination of measurements. Excellent question. I hope that we see more of above zone uh, pressure monitoring, and also um, looking for the effect of gravity and getting it from fall off tests. Um, um, combining um, the pressure transient with the temperature transient. These are some of the goals that I could see that uh, if accomplished can be very meaningful. Right. Makes sense. Jordan, what are your thoughts on the topic? I liked what Mehdi said. Um, pressure and temperature. Uh, we've been talking about temperature transient analysis for years and it didn't really stand out for oil and gas. Maybe that's in CCS that it will uh, find its place and, and provide incremental value for the seismic to really track that plume. Um, pressure alone is just not going to cut it. It doesn't even cut it for oil and gas. Uh, it's You are going to be hard pressed to do everything with just pressure. Um, and maybe um, more and more observation ways to really triangulate responses. Right. Thanks. And finally, Anton, what's on your Christmas wish list? Yes, I think that uh, uh, coming years, we probably will see uh, similar pictures of oil and gas that uh, many, many wells will be equipped with. So, from the whole gauges provided a lot of new data, and I think it will be a, both challenges for uh, actually uh, operational companies to analyze this data and also for R&D and academia. And, uh, uh, for the last one, I think the main challenge will be to try to interpret flowing data. When we have, for example, ejection period, we don't need to wait for shut-in and we can interpret this period as well. Yes, very good topic. So, excellent. 
with those parting words, I'd like to thank again all our, our speakers for participating, for your availability, for the time and for the insights. Thanks a lot to the audience for attending and for all the questions. Sorry, we couldn't cover all of that. And finally, Natalie, Asha, and Eben from SPE, thank you very much for putting that together. This was a, a very engaging session, setting some follow-up. To everyone, have a great day and great end of year and hope to meet you soon. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.